Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. We're going to, from now up through Pentecost, we are going to be looking at snapshots of Jesus and Jesus' words as taken from the vantage point of John in his Gospel. And then after that, once we hit the summer, we're going to go through the book of Philippians together. But right now, it's John for several weeks. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His disciples remembered what was written in uh, Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I wonder if you saw this article. It came out at the beginning of January. It was in Science Magazine. I think it was later picked up by the national media. It was the research research findings of two scientists, a cancer geneticist and a biostatistician. Their research indicates that two-thirds of all cancers are the result of bad genetic luck. Two-thirds of the time. The cosmic roulette wheel comes up either in your favor or it doesn't. The cells divide you know, millions of times daily, and when they do, they, as I understand the science, uh, they copy their DNA into the new cell. Sometimes that copy machine screws up. Errors get introduced into the new DNA, which are perpetuated, creating more genetic error. error. And, and so two-thirds of the time, there's... There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. I mean, one-third of the time, if you smoke two packs a day, if you're exposed to certain carcinogens, then... But two-thirds of the time, you're walking around inside of you with either good code or bad code. Isn't that strange to think of ourselves that way? Not to put too morbid of a spin, but some of us are ticking time bombs. And our children, when you think about it for a minute, isn't that strange that they're coded for, for good or, or ill? It, it was French, the French philosopher Camus. He said, tell me what you enjoy the most, and I'm going to give you 24 hours to do whatever it is that you enjoy in this life the most. And you have all the money that you need to, uh, to spend it on for those 24 hours. Enjoy yourself to the hilt. But at the end of it, I'm going to shoot you in the head. 
If you know that will be the case, I ask you, will you have a very good time in those 24 hours? That's the, that's the problem with life, isn't it? That's what resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the answer to the problem. The resurrection changes everything. Because of the resurrection from the dead, that it takes away the morbidity of of our mortality. It gives us reason to invest our lives fully in God's creation, cancer or no cancer, statistics for us or against us. What we do matters in this life, and it carries on into eternity if Jesus is to be believed. The resurrection of the dead changes everything. Well, let's, let's explore that together. John chapter 2. So we have here this episode in Jesus' life, the cleansing of the temple. Now, I ended up preaching on the same episode back last summer when we were finishing up in the Gospel of Mark. I don't want to say everything now that I said then. I'll just kind of boil it down to a few points. The first is that this is the Jewish Passover. It's one of the three great feasts. Jewish pilgrims would travel all the way to the city They would flock through the city's gates. The city would sextuple in size. The historian Josephus tells us that as many as 250,000 animals would get sacrificed at Passover. 250,000. Even if that number is exaggerated, as most believe it is, you get this sense of tremendous convergence of people and animals in this place. Verse 14 Jesus, we read, in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Cattle, sheep, and doves, because if you were traveling, let's say from as far away as Italy, it's not like you were going to bring your oxen on the trip. You had to be able to buy a sacrifice on site. And then the coins of the money changers, if you were 21 years old and up, and you were a man, you were expected to pay the temple tax which was used for the upkeep of the facility. And you needed to pay it in the local currency. The problem is that they were doing all of this in the temple. Verse 16, Jesus is furious. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So when you go to sell your house today, oftentimes people will now hire a home stager. Right? And what is the, what's the goal of a home stager? They come in and they try to make your property as attractive as it can be to the largest number of potential buyers out there. They'll walk in and they will rearrange your furniture. They'll take some out so that it, so rooms don't seem like they're too cluttered. They'll bring some in. They'll replace pieces that are a little avant-garde and they'll put in more neutral pieces. Home stager's goal is to erase your fingerprints on your home. So if you have family photographs that are hanging there on the wall, you have to take those down. If you have um, stenciled over the fireplace in your living room, God bless the Cheney house, you have to paint over that in neutral colors because you have to erase all of your your fingerprints from the house because when the buyer walks in, you don't want them to see your house. You want them to see their house. You want them to imagine, what would this look like 
if this place were mine, what it would it be like if my photographs were on the wall, if my rugs were covering the floor? No matter where you live, you want your living space to reflect who you are. Our desire is to have a living space which reflects our personality, our tastes, who we are, and God is no different. So when the Son of God comes to the Father's house, he says, I want the temple to reflect who you are to the rest of the world. And instead of this being a place of hustle and bustle and mooing cows and commerce, he wants it to be a place of prayer, solemnity, a place to contemplate God's majesty, in a place where you and I would be welcome into God's presence. It's very significant where this takes place. I said back when we were going through the Gospel of Mark, this event takes place in the court of the Gentiles. In the center of the city of the temple, you had the most holy place. The high priest could go into that only once a year. Then you had the holy place where certain priests would go in and burn daily incense. The court of the priests, where most of the sacrifices took place. Then the court of Israel, where only men were allowed to go. Then the court of women, where only Jewish women were allowed to go. And then finally, on the very outside, for the outsiders like us, the court of the Gentiles. What Jesus was trying to do is, he was trying to say, for you and me, you are welcome in my Father's house. Okay, let's try another thing with this passage. Let's uh, imagine a cartoon setting where you have 10 or 20 stampeding animals, cartoonish animals who are headed out the door. They're being led by uh, a mad bull with pointy horns, and he has a ring through his nose. He's, he's furiously mad. You can, you can kind of get that image. There are... Uh, dust and dirt that is billowing from the floor as the, these animals are stampeding and there's a funny looking cartoonish gatekeeper who's surprised and he begins to run away as the animals chase him and, and off he runs across the horizon and there are the animals following him out through the door off, off into never and ever land. You get the image? Those were sacrificial animals that were running away. That's part of the symbolism that's taking place here. All of your Old Testament sacrificial animals and systems are, are running away over the horizon. And what's left? Just one sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's one image of it. He's standing there in the court of the Gentiles for you and me, driving off all of these other animals, and he's standing there as a lamb, saying, I am here to bear away your sins so that you can be welcomed into the Father's presence. The other thing I found interesting on this, this passage, I never realized it before. You probably have heard, and I've heard, that the Jews did not have the power of capital punishment. That was the reason they had to go to Pontius Pilate. The Romans, they were the only, the only ones who could execute people, and that's why Jesus gets crucified on a cross 
a Roman form of punishment. And generally that's the case. But when you read the history, you discover that in select circumstances, in unique circumstances, the Jews could actually put somebody to death in the first century when there was a disturbance in the temple. Like the temple at that day was such a volatile place, the political instability would be so great if you had a disturbance in the temple that the priests were allowed to snatch a person out and club them over the head and, and put them to death. What's fascinating is that Jesus escapes that. And instead, in verse 18, instead of killing him, they ask him a question and give him a tremendous opportunity to teach a little bit. They say, verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that you're, you have authority to do this? And Jesus answers, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Okay, the image I have is of a lamb who is saying, I will raise the dead. Every other instance in the Bible that I've been able to find that speaks about the resurrection, it's always in terms of of different members of the Trinity. The Father, he's the one who most frequently spoken of as raising the Son from the dead. The Spirit comes into the body of the Son, reanimates him, brings him. But no, no, no. This is the one place in the Bible where the Son says, I will raise myself up from the dead. And it's a lamb who has the power to do that. Isn't that interesting? And he goes on then later in the Gospel of John, John 6, 40, he says, and anyone who believes in me, I myself will raise him up on the last day. Kara Tippetts is a 38-year-old mother of four who is, she's the wife of a PCA church planter her, she's featured on the cover of By Faith magazine, which is our denomination's quarterly or so magazine. I think Brian said, how many, we have a number of copies out in the entryway, a few at least, but you can, she's on the cover of it. And she's dying of brain cancer at the age of like 35, late 30s, a mom of four. She has started to chronicle her experience on a blog entitled Mundane Faithfulness. And the writings there are oh so powerful. If, if you're much of a reader, you've got to pull it up. Mundane faithfulness. There's such a honesty and freshness to her writing. What do you say to a mom of 35 who's contracted brain cancer? Oh, sorry. Tough luck. Your gene sequencing, the billions of characters in your... DNA, uh, a few letters got messed up and tough luck. We were headed out to the state basketball tournament on Thursday night. We were headed to Valley View High School and Chinden Boulevard was completely shut down. There was an accident around Canada Road so we had to take a detour, a mile or so long detour out of the way. Apparently, a car had pulled out into the intersection. There was a tra- truck pulling a trailer. It swerves, and it hits head-on another car coming, uh, coming towards it, and it shears the top of the sedan off. I mean, it was, it was ugly. 
What do you say? That stuff happens? Sorry? Or even when we were watching the basketball game, I thought about this. We, so we went to see one of our neighbors, a friend of ours, Jackson Hughes, who's the point guard for the basketball, for the archers, Ambrose archers. And in that game, he shot like four three-pointers that I, I promise you were like halfway in, only at the last second to rim out. I mean, if Jackson had applied one half of one joule of energy less on those shots, they fall and the game's an entirely different game. What do you say to all of that? That it's, that life is just random and it's, it's meaningless? The resurrection says no. The resurrection says in spite of all appearances, there is a point to life. Because there is a God who is governing life. You know, those are things that I believe for so long that they, they've come to seem just obvious to me. When you step back for a minute, though, you, you realize that your non-Christian friends and family members and neighbors, it's not obvious to them. Why don't you suggest to them, if they are spiritually inquiring, or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're an atheist or an agnostic or a seeker or a skeptic, but you, you just care about inquiring, why don't you pick up a book? N.T. writes, Surprised by Hope. Tom Wright, Surprised by Hope. Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. There's a, just a great treatment of that. There is a God, and there's a way back to God. That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 2. There is a God, and you don't have to grope through life examining and exhausting every spiritual possibility because this God has exploded into the world through the resurrection of his Son. We think of Jesus in John 2 as this crazy man because he's got a whip in his hand and he's turning over pieces of furniture and stuff. But what, what makes him the crazy man is the totality of his claims. He says that I am the temple and I am the lamb. I am the house and I am the sacrifice. Elsewhere he says, I am the priest and I am the altar and I am the incense on the altar. And there's this this totality that he's claiming for himself. He's saying, in essence, I am everything you need to be welcomed back into the presence of God. He does all of the work. I mean, he's the point guard and the shooting guard and the power forward and the center and the, and the coach. He does all of the work in order to win the game. Saying that you don't have to climb your way to the top with your own Sherpa, but I've climbed down to you and I've given reason for, for there to be hope in your life and hope in this broken world. Jesus Christ says, I am the temple and everything inside of it as well. Well, let me go, go back to Kara Tippetts and read you one short excerpt from her writings. I, she, like I said, she speaks with such honesty and, and beauty. Maybe I'll summarize the, the beginning of it, but uh, imagine fighting so hard against cancer for months and months, maybe even over the course of a year, and all of your energies are 
being spent on beating back the disease. And then the oncologist comes and tells you, it's time for you to go into hospice. She says, I felt like an enormous blow when my oncologist told me it was time to enter hospice. I felt like I felt like I was quitting. I felt like my body had failed and I was being pulled from the team and being benched in an awful and permanent way. It was so hard for me as a fighter because we were no longer testing anymore. No more measures on my cancer, no more PET scans, MRIs, and, or blood tests to measure tumor markers. We don't know where it's growing, where it's fading, which organs are involved, or how my bones are doing. From my pain, I suspect the cancer has been having a heyday in my bone system, and that's what we spend most of our time trying to manage. Today, the nurse spoke to us about the stages of dying. My husband, Jason, and I sat as she explained what is coming next. We don't want to know what's coming next. But she was gentle in telling us, and we silently wept. Afterwards, my two sons, Mickey and Carl, came to my bedside, and we all faced this little, this little bit of reality as best as we could. And after all that was over, I asked for my favorite food, life cereal. I asked for a bowl of cereal, and I cried into my favorite snack. I cried, and I knew that I have turned yet another corner. And around that corner, I will be met with new grace, new joy. I will have a more sincere, sincere story to tell and a more immediate desire for those I love to know the true love of my life, the, the big Jesus love in my life that makes all this possible. There'll be more tears in my cereal, and that's okay, I know. Those, those tears are captured, and they are known. All this brokenness is known. I'm broken into a million tiny shards, and each piece is known. She spends a lot of time thinking about the resurrection from the dead. She talks about maybe a springtime day like this one, where the paralyzed will run on new legs. Those who have been injured in auto accidents or have lost their limbs through old age will run in their new bodies. Bones which are riddled with cancer will be perfect and strong when rebuilt. Minds that are broken by Alzheimer's will be restored. Everything hinges on this claim that Jesus rebuilt the temple, which was his body. If that is the case, does the resurrection really change everything for you? I mean, what would you want the resurrection to be changing in you? What difference would you want the resurrection, the future day to be making right now in the way that, that you live? If you know there is a God and your days are short, aren't you going to get busy quickly loving that God with all of your heart and loving other people who are created in his image? If the resurrection does change everything, like, what is it changing for you? The last thing I want, you to, I want to leave you with is the, the phrase, this phrase, uh, it took 40, was it 46 years to build the temple? 46 years to build the temple and six hours to destroy it completely. 
What am I talking about? Good Friday was 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And at the end of that six hours, he cried out with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. And the Gospels tell us at that very moment, the veil of the temple curtain was torn into two. And at that very moment, the temple is destroyed, kaput. The temple is gone, even though it's still standing, because the temple has lost its purpose. With the death of Jesus, the temple is destroyed in order that a new temple, a new meeting place between God and man should be uh, made. Three days later, a new temple arises from the dust and the ashes, and that new temple becomes not only the center of the city of Jerusalem, but it becomes the center of the entire world and universe. That if there is a new temple that's been rebuilt, it's the center around which we must build. Imagine there was a rich oil baron who was an alumnus of your great alma mater college, and he decided that he was going to donate the greatest piece of artwork, the most glorious painting in his collection, one that is simply grand, and he hands it over to the trustees. Trustees are blown away by this unexpected gift, and they take it around to each building on campus, and they hold it up to the wall to see how does it fit here, how does it fit here? They look around and they, they finally realize that there's not a single place on this entire campus that's fitting for this piece of artwork. Well, if that's, if that's so, then what do you do? You level the entire campus and you build around that one piece. That's what we're saying about what we ought to do with resurrection. We're saying the temple has been rebuilt which is the resurrected body of Jesus, and that's what everything in your life ought to center around. Uh, We proclaim that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We are not canvassing for votes, trying to get him elected, and we are not manning phone banks on election night, hoping he wins the popular vote. We are saying that he is Lord. Nothing is random. Nothing is meaningless. Because resurrection has happened. The temple has been rebuilt. That's what makes life worth living. Amen.